Let's go to Deuteronomy once again. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 through 21 this morning. Now, this is a passage that uh, has likely left many of us uh, scratching our heads a bit, wondering what it's all about. These are the dietary laws that were given to Israel on a parallel passage in Leviticus uh, chapter 8. And uh, I want to remind us that here at Trinity, we believe what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy, that all of Scripture, and there Paul is primarily talking about the Old Testament, all of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for God's people. And I trust that we will find that to be true uh, this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 21. Let's hear God's word together. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, I had to look that one up, the hoopoe and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. On the Havener household last night, we had breakfast for dinner. And what is breakfast for dinner without some bacon? Is there anything like 
the taste and smell of salted pork cut into thin slices, but not too thin, and cooked perfectly, crispy, but not too crispy. There isn't anything like it, is there? It's hardly anything more mouth-watering that we can enjoy. And yet, our passage reminds us that for centuries, God's people were denied this and other things. No shrimp, no scallops, hard to imagine, no pulled pork barbecue, no ham. Some of us might be okay with that one. No ham, no cooked ham for Christmas, right? Um, These and many other things God's people were not allowed to enjoy under the old covenant. And the immediate question that comes to our minds is, why not? What, What is the rationale that stands behind all of these seemingly arbitrary, bizarre, strange food laws that we find both here and in Leviticus chapter 11. Why were the Israelites commanded by God to maintain such a distinctive diet? In Deuteronomy 12, this was a few weeks ago, remember in Deuteronomy 12, God reveals himself as a generous host. Remember, he's bringing his people into the promised land and he invites them to eat as much meat as their hearts desire. The God who fills every mouth under heaven is anything but stingy. Just think about all of the mouths in the world, microscopic and as big as a hippo's, that the Lord fills The God who fills every mouth under heaven is anything but stingy. And yet Deuteronomy 14 goes a step further. The God who is a generous host to his people is also more specifically revealed here as a father. And he is a father who sets chosen food before his chosen children. You see, God reveals himself in this passage to be a father to his chosen special possession, his children, and he gives them chosen choice food. Accordingly, I'd like us to consider this passage in in two parts. First, the family at the Lord's table, and secondly, the food at the Lord's table. Notice that before Moses launches into the dietary laws in verses 3 through 21, He identifies Israel as a distinctive people in verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. So he identifies them as chosen children, a people holy or set apart by and for the Lord. And we see in this passage that being set apart by God has implications for Israel's funeral rituals. They are not to mourn the dead the same way as the Canaanites. And we also see in more detail here that it has implications for Israel's diet in verses 3 through 21. And I want to get too far ahead of ourselves at this point, but we can say that these same distinctions 
apply to us as Christians today, albeit in different ways. Paul reminds us in the New Testament that he does not want Christians to mourn like those who are without hope when they have lost a brother or sister in Christ. And and we remember as well uh, that the spiritual food that Jesus gives us at the table, one of the things it does is it serves to distinguish his people from the world. But more on that later. First, we, we shouldn't miss the, the way this chapter begins. The way that the Israelites are uniquely identified as the sons of God. I think it would be a serious mistake to just skip over that the description of God's people as his children, his chosen and treasured possession. We need to meditate upon this for a few moments. I was just reminded of this uh, last week, uh, reading a book with some folks here at church, that the late uh, J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, says something along the lines of, if, if, you, wanna, if you wanna judge how well someone understands Christianity, let's turn that on ourselves. If you want to judge how well you understand Christianity, then find out what you make of having God as your father and being called one of his sons or daughters, being a child of God. What do you make in your life of being God's child? You know, one of the complications, of course, when we talk about the reality of adoption is that we are prone to and interpret what it means to be God's child on the basis of our experience with our earthly parents, earthly father. Scripture encourages us rather to understand it in the light of what Scripture says. And I think one of the most beautiful illustrations of God's fatherly care and provision is found in 2 Samuel, which really shows us what it means that God feeds us as his children. It depicts the same kind of fatherly care and hospitality that stands behind Deuteronomy 14. It shows us what this kind of care looks like. You remember before uh, King Saul and his son Jonathan died on Mount Gilboa, that David made a covenant with his friend Jonathan in which he promised to show him and his children after him, steadfast love, kindness, even after Jonathan was gone. But you remember the story that when the news of Jonathan's death reached the place where his young son was being cared for by a nurse, that she, she fled. Because in the ancient world, when a king died, very often his family got wiped out with him because a new king was coming into town and he didn't want anyone contesting for the throne. So this nurse picked up Jonathan's boy. He was just five years old and she fled. And in her haste, she dropped him. And he became lame in both of his feet. His name was Mephibosheth. Years later, after David's rule and kingdom was established 
David remembered his promise to Jonathan and he asked the question, is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he was told about Mephibosheth who had grown and when David heard about him, he not only sent for him and he not only restored to him all of the land of Saul, he also said, you shall eat at my table always. You shall eat at my table always. And the story concludes in 2 Samuel 9 with these words. So Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Okay, so just think for a moment about the story of Israel's redemption and think about the story of Mephibosheth. Both were, both were vulnerable and, and helpless. One a slave people, one a cripple, but steadfast love was shown to them. Kindness was shown to them. They were cared for as a father cares for his own son. And so they were given an inheritance. And they were provided for by the king himself. And do you see how this reflects what, what kind of love the father has shown to us in calling us the children of God? What, what the Lord did for Israel for the sake of his covenant with Abraham and what David did for Mephibosheth because of his steadfast love and loyalty to Jonathan, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has extended to us the same kind of steadfast love and kindness for the sake of his beloved Son. We have been brought near, we have been given an inheritance that can never be lost and we are e invited to eat at the king's table always as children of the king have you come to terms with it friends that we are actually called in Jesus Christ the children of God and all that that means even though we have been crippled in far deeper ways than Mephibosheth. We have a father who, who comes in his grace and picks us up. I mean, we can't, we can't even make it to the table. You remember the first way that Deuteronomy talks to us about the fatherhood of God? It's back in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Do you remember it? The first way that Deuteronomy reveals something of the fatherhood of God. He describes the Lord as a father who not only led Israel through the wilderness, but carried his people as a man carries his own son upon his hip. Isn't that wonderful imagery? It's like, it's like me picking up Eli or Liam and throwing them on my hip. That's how God carries his people and he never drops us. Because we are his treasured possession. Friends, we haven't even begun. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the benefits of our adoption in Jesus Christ. The, there's no way, I think, to provide a comprehensive and complete 
summary of all of the blessings and benefits that flow to us through our adoption in Jesus Christ. Our affirmation of faith this morning took a crack at it. And the Westminster Confession of Faith does a great job of of summarizing so many of the benefits, saying through our adoption we receive a new family name and identity as the children of God. We're made to belong. We're not just forgiven and reconciled. We're, We're welcomed in as sons. Through adoption, we receive God's fatherly care and protection. We receive his loving discipline and direction. We receive the spirit of adoption who enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And through our adoption, we receive a royal inheritance as we are made to be co-heirs with Christ. But perhaps, perhaps the greatest blessing of our adoption is one that was not actually specifically mentioned in the Westminster summary of the doctrine of adoption. Perhaps the greatest blessing of our adoption is the feast that we enjoy at the Father's table in fellowship. This is something that is so wonderfully depicted for us in the story of the prodigal son. See, the the good news is not only that we no longer desire to be fed on the pig slop of this world. What a, what a wonderful thing that is, right? To come to our senses and realize the emptiness and the vanity of feeding on the pig slop of this world. You know, that's something you want to pay attention to when Jesus is telling the story and he says that this young man came to his senses. I hope we perk up because we want to come to our senses like that, <laughs> But that's not the greatest news. The greatest news is not that we've come to our senses and realized the vanity of the pig slop of this world. The greatest news isn't even that the Father welcomes us back with open arms and puts a ring on our finger and clothes upon our back. The greatest news comes when the Father says, get the fatted calf and let's have a feast. Let's celebrate in the Father's house. Friends, this is the the climax to our adoption, feasting in fellowship at the Lord's table. This is where fellowship takes us. This is the, the blessing that we find again and again and again in scripture, that this is where the gospel is bringing us to the table of the Lord. And that brings us to the food at the Lord's table. Uh, The food at the Lord's table. A bunch of questions come to mind when you read this passage. What do we make of these strange laws? Why were the sons of Israel given this distinctive diet? And what on earth does it mean for us today? Let's try to answer some of those questions and begin by by noticing that the specific reason for these laws is grounded in verse 2. That Israel is a holy people to the Lord. That they are his children, his chosen people, his treasured possession, special to the Lord and as his sons called to obey him. And so Israel's special status as 
God's chosen children is the reason in this text for these food laws. They served, they would have served, as a daily reminder to the children of God of of their being holy, of their being set apart by the Lord and for the Lord. Their, Their calling to not live in the same way as the surrounding nations. If you think about it, every meal in Israel would have been a kind of reminder that they were set apart. And it taught them, it taught them to be set apart in more morally significant areas of their lives. For as Christopher Wright puts it so helpfully in his commentary, a God who governs the kitchen should be not easily forgotten in the rest of life. And so this distinctive diet taught Israel to think and to live as a people set apart to the Lord. It really is quite profound, I think, when you think about it, the distinctive identity that would be instilled through a distinctive diet. The law served as a tutor. Remember that. The law served as a tutor. And by learning to make careful distinctions in the realm of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. Remember, that's not synonymous with uh, sinless or um, sinful. These These are cultic categories that we're talking about. But by learning to make careful distinctions in terms of clean and unclean food, God's people were being trained to make careful distinctions in the moral realm as well. They were, given, they were being given a different set of eyes, if you will, a different view of the world. But that still leaves some questions unanswered, at least it does for me. One of the questions that I've been wrestling with is, okay, what is the rationale underlying this distinction between clean and unclean animals? If we understand generally that the, the, the laws are given to Israel um, to demonstrate that they've been set apart by the Lord. But what is the, the rationale for these specific animals? Why are certain animals clean and certain animals declared unclean? For example, why is it okay to eat a deer but not a pig? Okay, That's one of the questions that comes to mind. Well, in the history of interpretation, there have been a lot of attempts to explain the rationale for these distinctions. Uh, One of the most common today, and it's been around for a while, is that the distinction between clean and unclean animals is primarily for health and hygienic reasons. Even though bacon might be delicious, and even though we might love pulled pork barbecue, pigs are gross. Right? They wallow in the muck and they eat a bunch of slop. So goes the argument. And eating scavenger birds. You know, can you imagine shooting down a black vulture out of the sky and cooking it up for dinner? It's probably not what the doctor ordered. And so the argument is that God was giving his people a healthy diet. But I'm convinced that that is an entirely inadequate explanation. After all, if you think about it, if the the reason for these prohibitions is based on health concerns, the good of the bodies of of God's people, then that would imply that God no longer really cares (laughs) 
about our health because after all, Jesus has declared all foods clean under the new covenant. So there has to be something more to it than just health and hygienic concerns. And as I've studied, I am, I am more and more convinced that early Christian interpreters were really onto something. And I think that their explanation is grounded in the text itself. It's grounded in this passage, as I'll try to demonstrate here in a minute. But ancient Christian interpreters said that there is something about the nature of these animals and, and the way that they inhabit and interact with the world around them that renders them clean or unclean. God is, in other words, using these creatures to teach his people about what it means to be set apart by declaring some creatures clean and others unclean. Right? You could say that there's something about clean animals that ought to be emulated in our lives and something in the lives of these unclean animals that ought to be avoided. And this interpretation is based off some key observations. It is, first of all, I think worth noticing that the different animals are grouped together on the basis of the three habitats that God originally created in Genesis 1. So, namely, you have the earth in verses 4 through 8, sea in verses 9 and 10, and the sky in verses 11 through 20. And what appears to distinguish clean and unclean animals in these different habitats is related to things like the animal's body, uh, its eating habits, and its environment. Notice this is grounded in the text itself. For example, verse 6. Here's something that we're given in Deuteronomy for understanding the distinction between clean and unclean land animals. Clean animals are those which part the hoof and choose the cud. Okay, so there's two things. Two things making an animal clean. It parts the hoof and it chews the cud. The early church said a cloven hoof can be understood as a metaphor for exercising care in the way that we come into contact with the world around us. If you think about the, the foot, these, these shooed animals, and right in the middle of it, there's this cleft. And this is exactly what Israel was being called to do in distinction from the nations around them. And chewing the cud that one's, I think, even more straightforward. It is a well-established and known biblical metaphor for meditating and ruminating on God's words. In contrast, right, unlike snakes and lizards that just swallow whole down their food or, or crocodiles who scarf down their meal just blowing past every imaginable gag reflex, these unclean animals just swallow whole their food without exercising any kind of discernment, while clean animals chew and process their food. In other words, we could put it this way, they eat with discernment. They chew the cud and digest everything slowly, and this is exactly what we are called to do in our Christian lives. I think a similar principle applies to sea creatures in verses 9 and 10. See, clean sea creatures have two things. 
They have scales that protect them from the world around them and fins that we might say direct them in the way that they go. And so something to recognize is in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, scales are often very closely related to body armor. And so clean animals are those which have scales to protect them and we might say fins to guide them. What about the birds? What about the birds? There's no specific criterion given to separate between clean and unclean birds in verses 11 through 20. There seems to be a diminishing amount of material to work with as the list progresses. There's the most detail on land animals, a bit less on sea animals, and then nothing on the birds of the air. No specific criterion. We simply have a list of clean and unclean creatures without any specific explanation. But if you think about the birds listed here, if you slow down and you think with a bit of sanctified imagination, I really think those commentators are onto something who recognize that the unclean birds are they're, they're predatory, they're scavenger birds, or they're nocturnal. They're associated with dark and deserted environments. So for example, you have the night hawk, the owls, um, the bat, they're all nocturnal creatures which you know, do all of their business in the darkness. The ostrich in the Old Testament was considered a desert bird. And of course we know vultures, vultures feed on carcasses. You know, unclean, they, they, they live on things that are declared unclean. So I want to give you one example from an early Christian interpreter named Novation to give you flavor, pardon the pun here, but the flavor of how the early church read a passage like Deuteronomy 14. I think, really think they're onto something. He says, who would dare partake of the hawk or the eagle? The law hates those who live by violence. Who does not loathe the vulture? The law abhors those who look for booty in someone else's death? Who would eat the crow? The law detests immoral and shady intentions. When the law condemns the nocturnal birds, it hates those who shun the light of truth. When it detests the bat, it condemns those who seek out the darkness of error like it is the night. Novation goes on to say that since these animals are born with these characteristics, right? Scavenger birds, predatory birds, nocturnal birds. He, he, he says that they're without reproach. He's saying it's a part of their, their nature. There isn't something wrong with them as God's creatures, but the animals are meant to teach us about what a life set apart to the Lord our God looks like. Because these qualities among the unclean creatures are off limits for the people of God. Right? We're not to be like the evil men warned about in Proverbs who prey upon others. We are not to dwell in darkness, but to be a people of the light and so on. And all of this, all of this would suggest, I think, that there is a deep underlying biblical logic at work here. Right? There is a way of looking at the world set forth here. Now, of course, making these biblical connections requires that we do some pattern recognition, 
And it certainly requires a bit of what I'm calling sanctified imagination. And we're just scratching the surface this morning. And I think I ought to also say, while we can say a lot of things with firmness and certainty from the pulpit, these comments today are suggestive. But, but if it's right, in these dietary laws, we are learning to walk with split hooves. We are learning to chew the cud in a world that's full of pig slop. We are being clothed with scaled armor for spiritual warfare and we're, we're being guided through life by the word of God. We're being taught to, to separate, to distinguish ourselves from the way of the world which just scarfs down whatever comes along, whatever the world desires and wallows in the muck and preys upon others and dwells and lives in the darkness of the night. You see, in New Testament terms, instead of being conformed to the patterns of this world, we are being called in these dietary laws to have our minds transformed by the truth of God's word. We're being taught to be holy, right? You see, we we don't just need, and I think this is the challenge to the church today, particularly in the Reformed Church. We love our epistles, don't we? We love our propositional truths. We love to read the Apostle Paul. Give me the book of Romans. But we don't just need New Testament epistles. We need pictures. We need pic- I'd love to see if any of the kids today have drawn any of these animals. I'd love to see your pictures afterwards. But we need pictures to sanctify our imaginations. And, and we need pictures to, to instruct us. And I think that's what these dietary laws are intended to do. And so while Israel's dietary laws no longer apply to us in the same way that they did to God's people under the old covenant, I think they still have a whole lot to teach us about what it means, what it looks like to live as the chosen children of God, as his special possession. These lives that are distinctly different from those around us. But to be sure, with the coming of Christ, God has broken down the separation that formerly existed between Jew and Gentiles. All food, as I said, has been declared clean by the Lord Jesus. Even bacon, even pulled pork. But, but even these peculiar dietary laws, even the most peculiar dietary laws, end up pointing us directly to the even greater provision that God has given us in the feast, which he offers to us freely in his son. Like one other thing we need to recognize as we wrap up is Deuteronomy 14 is the Lord's invitation to eat the food which he himself takes delight in, in the form of Old Testament sacrifices. Now we no longer present these offerings as sacrifices to God, but instead we celebrate the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And we do so every single time we partake of the bread and wine of communion. We participate in the feast, eating and drinking chosen food for God's chosen people. See, my friends, God still uses food to distinguish his people from the world and he still gives his people 
choice food. We can go so far as to say that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he acted not only as the divine host who invites us to eat in his presence, but as God in the flesh, inviting redeemed sinners, the children of God, his holy people, his chosen ones, his treasured possession to eat of him. For it's Jesus who said, my, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Drink of it all of you. I mean, what an amazing invitation. Because, as we've seen already in the book of Deuteronomy, and we are going to see again and again and again and again, you might be sick of it by the time, of, uh, by the time we reach the end of this series, But the theme I want us to understand from the book of Deuteronomy is that the Lord is our life. The Lord is our life. And so we can sing that old hymn by Spurgeon, Amidst us our beloved stands. He says in one verse, What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord. The cup how rich, the bread How sweet when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. So brothers and sisters, from Deuteronomy 14, hear the word of the Lord. You are the children of God. His chosen sons and daughters. His precious, treasured possession. You belong to him. And see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that he would give his one and only son, that we might be called the children of God, set apart for the Lord. Therefore, this passage calls us to live as those who have been redeemed and have been set apart by the Lord and for the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we We marvel at the steadfast love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage which teaches us uh, about what it means to live holy lives as obedient children. And we pray that you would help each one of us to do that for your name's sake. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.